Can we really believe that we will live after we die? I think that's perhaps one of the greatest challenges to our thinking and where faith is demanded. When we die, is there something more? Can we really believe that there is something after this life to which that we are to look forward to? It is a question that has been asked by, I think, every human being who's ever been put on the earth. Do we go out of existence when the body dies? Or will we continue on? Is there something more than this? The Christians in Corinth seem to have similar difficulty. The first 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 went on to talk about this is the gospel that you have received and it is what you believe, it is what you are standing in. And the heart of that gospel message is the resurrection of Jesus. And after telling them that you believe that, he's now going to explain the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus has raised from the dead, then there are certain things that exist and certain things that do not exist. And that's what this big section in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15 is describing. He begins with verses 12 through 19. And what he will describe for us that we will look at today is what it means if there is not the resurrection of the dead. And then in verse 20 to 28, he will say, but since there is a resurrection of the dead, here are the consequences and implications of that. So that's what we're going to look at then this morning is the first half of that. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll take 20 uh, and 28 and look at the implications that come from that. But first, he starts off with the problem for them in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is an important beginning foundation argument that he is going to make now to the Corinthians. And what we're going to see, if you are very right brain, or excuse me, very left brain like me, very logical, need the numbers, everything in line, these arguments that Paul lays out just make an awful lot of sense because he's just going to say, here's the premise, and if that premise is true, then all of this must be true too. And if this is not true, then look at all the things that have happened happened if that's not true. And so he starts off with verse 12 and verse 12 that is everything that we're going to be looking at over these next couple of lessons. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if he has been raised from the dead, and I think the implication is that's what you Corinthians believe. He's not writing to a bunch of atheists who don't know if there's been a resurrection or not. They're Christians. And he proclaimed the gospel to them back in verse 1. I have to remind you of the gospel that I proclaim to you in which you stand. You believe that Jesus raised from the dead. And there is an implication from that. And the implication then is how is it possible for you to think that the dead are not raised? If Jesus is raised from the dead, then there must be the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12 is telling us from the very beginning, these two events cannot be separated. If we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, then there is no doubt that everybody else is going to be raised from the dead too. 
You can't pull the two apart. And that's why he's asking this question. If you think that Jesus rose from the dead, if that's been proclaimed to you, and that's what you are going around saying, then how is it possible that some of you are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead? And I want us to consider that it's not just about possibility, but it's also about purpose. He's not just saying, all right, it's extraordinarily illogical to think that Jesus raised from the dead and you won't be raised from the dead. That's not really the idea. And we should not paint the argument that way to say, well, I don't believe bodies can be raised, but I believe Jesus was raised. That's, That's not really what's at the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is this, is it is all about the purpose, the reason why Jesus raised from the dead. The reason why Jesus raised from the dead is it is a proof that we will raise from the dead. These two are tied together. That is the rationale behind it. It is a statement to us that since that occurred, we know we will also be raised. And essentially to sum up what we're going to look at this morning of what has happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. And he's going to round that out when we get to verse 20 at the end of this morning's lesson. What has happened to Jesus has happened to us. So he offers the question, how can you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? How can you doubt or wonder if there is life to come after we die? If you believe is what the first 11 verses says, he died, he was buried, he was raised, and all these people saw him. The two events stand or fall together. If Jesus is certainly raised from the dead, then we will be certainly raised from the dead. And that's what he's going to go on to say. If we are not raised from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Notice that's what he does in verse 13. That's what the, the, the crux of what he does here. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. That is that connective purpose. These two stand together. And based upon that, he is going to draw for us six consequences, six implications, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, here's what that means for everybody. And so that's how he lays it out. So it was just to follow the line of thinking. If there is no resurrection of us, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, there are six massive problems that we have. Problem number one, he gives in verse 14. He says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. He says all preaching then is meaningless. The good news now becomes bad news. There is no good news whatsoever to anyone if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Death has not been conquered. And I think in some it's to say there's nothing to preach to the world. What is there to proclaim? That Jesus died and stayed dead? What good does that do for anybody? There is no good news in that. There is absolutely no message in that. And why tell people to believe in Jesus if the consequence is the same? If believing in Jesus means you're going to stay in the ground like everybody else, what's the point of believing in him? That's going to happen anyway. And so that's what he starts off with. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised because that's the whole reason he raised. And if he hasn't been raised, friends, there's nothing to preach. There's nothing to tell anybody about. There's no reason to go around telling people about Jesus. 
There's no reason to tell people to put their hope in Him. There's no reason to tell people there's something more to this life than what we see. There's no point in preaching whatsoever. Number two, he says in verse 14, your faith is in vain. In fact, he says that twice. You'll notice it not only in verse 14, your faith is in vain, but he says it again in verse 17, your faith is futile. Your faith has no basis. Your faith is without any substance. There is no basis for it in the slightest. Believing in that gospel then has absolutely no value for our lives because a dead Savior cannot give life. If He's not alive, then who's giving life around here? He must be alive. That is the whole point that He wants us to get at. What is the point in believing in somebody who died and stayed dead? That happens all the time. That's happened to everybody. The whole hope, the whole basis of faith is that there is one who has come, who died, and then overcame death. If he hasn't overcome death, then there is no basis for our faith. In fact, in understanding that, I think he goes on to give us a a, a great idea. What is the point then of having any kind of faith? Think about all those great heroes of faith that we often read about in Hebrews chapter 11. And we read about all the suffering and all that they went through and all of their tribulation and difficulty. What was the point of that? What is the substance of that? What is the basis of it? If there is no resurrection of the dead, they were mistreated for nothing. They were killed for nothing. And that's why he began this whole section by saying resurrection is the heart of the gospel. Believing in life after death, believing that we will be raised is everything to this gospel message. And if it is not true, then what we are doing has no point. What we are believing in has no basis for hope. In verse 15, he basically says that the apostles and all the witnesses are liars. That's what he says in verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Notice he makes that connection again. If the dead are not raised, then Christ was not raised and God did not raise Him from the dead and that power was not put on display. If we do not believe that we will be raised from the dead, then Christ was certainly not raised. And God did not do the very thing that He said that He did. And the point that Paul wants to get at, all the apostles, all the prophets, and all of the witnesses that have been lined out here from verse 5, Cephas, the 12, the 500 brothers, verse 7, James, Paul himself, they are all liars. Every single one of them. That is the reality. If we do not believe that we will be raised from the dead, what we are declaring is every apostle is a liar. Every prophet was a liar. Everyone who claims to have been eyewitnesses of Jesus is a liar. In fact, to put it even more strongly, not only what they said, but what they wrote is a lie as well. Which means everything on these pages is false. If we do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, he says, don't believe anything. Because the apostles are liars. What they said was a lie and what they wrote was a lie. And we have no basis to believe anything that they ever said, ever did or ever wrote. 
There is no reason to believe in them in the slightest. And so they must be considered. They are not then innocently mistaken. You might have heard that as an argument sometimes. Well, they thought they saw the risen Lord. They were so excited and they they believed that they, in all of their exuberance, saw Him. And I want you to notice that that is not an answer that Paul gives. Paul does not say, well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, perhaps we were a little overambitious. He says we're liars. We misrepresented God. We are liars in every way and cannot be trusted in the slightest. And so we cannot believe what they wrote or what they said. Number four, he gives as an implication. He says there in verse in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. After restating the premise again in verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He now says, not only is your faith futile, but of the greatest consequence of all, we remain in our sins. No resurrection means that sin won over Christ because the power of sin is death. And so that means sin won, death won, Satan won. And there is then the unlikely and unfortunate reality that we're still lost. There is no hope for our sins. The power of sin still remains. And we then are doomed. To put it another way, if Jesus has not been raised, his death accomplished nothing If Jesus has not been raised, his death accomplished absolutely nothing. He died for no reason. And all that we read about when we studied Luke was all for naught. All of the ridicule, all of the mockery, all of the persecution, all of the lies and the deceit that was thrown toward him. Everything that he went through is a lie. It is not true, it is useless, and it has no value for us in the slightest. Consider how the Apostle Paul made that point in a very concise statement in Romans 4 and verse 24. And it says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. So he's handed over on the basis of our sins because we need a savior. He then goes to the cross, but he doesn't put the period there and say, now he was handed over for our sins. He goes on to say, and he was raised for our justification. There is no justification from our sins unless He is raised from the dead. There is no way to pronounce us innocent, to declare us righteous in His sight, to have any hope of being saved from our sins unless He's been raised from the dead. And that's why the Apostle Paul ties the two together. He's delivered for our sins, but He is raised for our justification. There must be resurrection. Otherwise, we have no hope. Otherwise, then the power of death still remains, and we then have no hope in the slightest. Number five, he gives in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
Fallen asleep is a polite way to speak of the dead. We, we do that even in our day. We usually don't say that somebody died unless we just don't know the person or don't care about the person. We usually say they passed away. And that's what it means to fall asleep. And that's all that that is getting at. It's not speaking to any theological depth beyond just simply a nice way to say they're dead. They no longer live. And that's what he's trying to say now is in verse 18. Then those who have died, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. This is the destiny then of all people. The very terror of death then still remains is really the point. That's perhaps I think one of the greatest fears of humanity is how's that going to go? Because nobody has been able to ever explain to us what death is like because then they're gone. And so the terror of death and what will happen after that now becomes something that is horrible because if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then at best what is happening to every single human is that our bodies are rotting away. And at worst, we are spending eternal torment. There's no other reality than that. If there is no resurrection of the dead and Christ has not been raised, then when our body is placed in the ground, at best we've gone to oblivion and our bodies are being rotted away. And at worst, our souls then are in eternal torment. There's no hope. There's nothing beyond that. There's no expectation. It is that grim, sad reality. And that is what he wants them to understand, is to believe there is no resurrection of the dead should really cause a a, a grim view of life that this is it. And all the things that we see in this world that are tragic and awful and distressful simply become even more distressing. I think of what just happened a few weeks ago with a professor and teacher of God's word that I Uh, greatly respect and love Brother Marty Pickup. Uh, How do you deal with something like that? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then life is cut off short for many, many people and there is no hope. There is no relief. There is no dealing with that distress. Then simply that was it. And it's over and done. The resurrection of the dead is everything to presenting hope, presenting faith, presenting everything that we need to look forward to that God has accomplished something more than in this life. And that's really then what verse 19 drives at. Verse 19, the sixth implication, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to put our hope in this life alone, then this is a very hopeless life. And we ought to be pitied for a number of reasons. We ought to be pitied, number one, because you might die today and that was it. And you thought you had 85 to 90 years, but turns out 38 was it and that's it, and you're done. Well, that's kind of awful. But more so than that... Why sacrifice for the cause of Christ? 
is really the heart of the message that Paul's getting at. We are to be most pitied because we are making sacrifices. We are giving of ourselves. We are turning the other cheek. We are doing what is in the best interest of others ahead of ourselves. If there's no resurrection of the dead, why are we doing any of those things? We ought to be pitied because then all that there is in this world, we need to be living for for ourselves and for nothing more. We most certainly must adopt the idea that Today is the only day, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And I want you to feel the weight that that's why the resurrection changes everything. We cannot consider that, well, if all that the Scriptures speak of is false, I would still be living the way that I am now. I submit to you that would be a fool. We would be absolute fools to do that. We would need to live this life soaking everything we possibly could get out of it. Selfishly, self-centeredly, for my own pursuits, my own desires, not caring about any laws, rules, or regulations in the slightest, because this might be the final moment that I have. Resurrection changes everything about how I live. If there is no resurrection, right now is a waste of time. And I submit to you, working is a waste of time. And everything that you probably have planned and scheduled that is mundane and plain is a waste of time. Because this might be the last second you have. And then especially to spend that time doing good for other people, helping others... Being willing to go to the death for the cause of Christ. What the Apostle Paul is saying, what is deserved of us is the pity that is reserved for fools. The apostles are fools. All those Christians are fools. Those that we read about going to their death are fools for believing in something that is not true. That is the crux, I believe, of the battle of humanity right now, especially in our culture. If there is no God, and there is no creation, and all that has happened is by chance and accident, and there is nothing beyond this life, then live for yourself. Be your own God. Follow your own rules and do whatever you like. Because it's the one life you're given. But if there is a God who has put us here with purpose, then there's not just one life, there are two. And that changes everything about how this life is to be lived. And notice that's the idea of verse 20. And that's what I love. Verse 20 now becomes the hub of this as he spins around and he says in verse 20, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. He doesn't even put it in a condition. If he hasn't been raised from the dead, here are the six problems that you have, O Corinthian Christians. Why are you preaching? Why do you have faith? Why are you sacrificing? Why are you doing all of these things? You're still in your sins. You have no hope. But Christ has been raised from the dead indeed. 
That is what it means to believe in Jesus. That is the heart of the gospel, as Paul explained in those first 11 verses. And therefore he becomes the guarantee of our resurrection, verse 20. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is a great imagery. He uses an image that comes from the law of Moses, an idea, a concept of first fruits. The first fruits did a couple of things. The first fruits first was an assurance that there was a harvest coming. As you brought your offering to the Lord, it was a symbol that there was more to come in like manner. If you have a harvest of corn, you bring in the first fruits, you have a small portion of the whole that is behind. And it is a representative sample of the harvest that exists. And that was the idea that is described here is that Christ's resurrection requires our resurrection. That's what the first fruits means. Since he raised, he is now the forerunner, the first fruits. Well, what does that mean? That he, It's not just that he was first. So what that he was first? The idea of first fruits is there's more to come behind him. There is a whole harvest that is coming behind him. He was presented first, and there is a great harvest that follows with him. Christ is the first to experience a permanent resurrection. We see resurrection in the scriptures a few times. They all died again. He is the first to never die again. Permanent resurrection, as we read about in Luke's gospel. And I want you to think about what this drives at, because what we saw in Luke's gospel was very important. We highlighted it and emphasized it, that Jesus was not just a spiritual resurrection. They did not see a ghost or a figment of their imagination, some kind of apparition that was out there. Remember, he said, touch me and see, see my hands, see my side. Is there some food here to eat? And Paul comes along and gives us a picture and says, what has happened to Jesus happens to all that are in Christ. This is the great hope of believing in Jesus, in that what we read with him is representative of us, that we will also have life just as he had life. We will be raised from the dead and we will come to new life as well. Now, if you're like me, And if you're like the Corinthians, you have the, well, how's that happen? Well, that'd be a couple of lessons. That's in verses 35 to 49, where he addresses that later on, because they're going to say, well, how can that be? Well, all right. Paul says, we'll get to that. We'll save that idea for them. So if you have the big, how is that possible that we can be raised from the dead? Don't worry. Paul's got you covered. Come on back in a few weeks. He'll tell you the answer to all that. But he wants to lay out this critical foundation. Jesus certainly raised from the dead. It is representative of what's going to happen next. All who are in him are going to follow in the same manner as him. We then will be that harvest, he being the first fruits of the resurrection. 
That then, I think, leads us to a really important concept as we wrap it up this morning. Really important concepts. One or two really key things about what the resurrection means for us. Number one, I think it is important to recognize then that what the Apostle Paul is teaching these Corinthians is to question or doubt life after death is to question that Jesus really lived. That's what it really comes down to. And I don't know that I've always understood that in that frame, but that's how Paul puts it in its frame. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the necessity is that there is a resurrection of the dead. If you believe Christ rose from the dead, then by necessity we will be raised. So if I question whether I will raise from the dead, what I'm saying is I don't believe Christ raised. That's just simply what he puts together. And that's why he's argued it this way. Because he knows they believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's why you're a Christian. That's why you believe. That's what it's all about. You believe that he came and died and rose. Therefore, to question our resurrection is to say that Christ is still dead. And therefore, we have no hope and we are still lost in our sins. The second great implication that I think is is also critically important to our, our understanding. Since there is a resurrection, how I live in this life only matters in terms of what it means to obtain that resurrection. The resurrection of the dead changes everything about how to live life today. It changes everything. Because no longer is my focus about right now, about me, what is useful for me or good for me or any of my comforts, desires and wishes. It all becomes about how am I going to attain the eternal life? Because no matter what I do, I'm going to die. I'm sorry to ruin your day. But every single person in this room is going to die. No matter what you do. You can eat as bad as you want or as healthy as you want. You can cryogenically freeze yourself. You can do whatever you want to do, but you're dying. All of us are terminal. So my perspective changes because now I need to prepare myself for the life to come. I'm going to die, but there is resurrection. And this life must be consumed then in determining how to prepare myself for that life. How can I be sure to get the real life? Because this one's not going to make it. This body's not going to make it. And I don't know how long I have. I can pretend that I'm going to get to do this for another 55 years. May not be another five days. And when our friends and loved ones... Catch us by surprise, like Brother Pickup did. That always wakes up the mind and go, wait a minute. This life is not what it's all about. 
And I must always ask myself today, what am I doing today to prepare myself? Since there is a resurrection of the dead. I need to do everything to ensure that I'm part of that. Jesus gave a good answer to that in Matthew 25. We don't have time to turn there. I'll just sum it up for you there in Matthew 25. Where he speaks of dividing sheep and goats there. And the determination, they say, well, what did you do to your Lord Jesus? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was prisoned, did all these things that he lays out of all these various activities. When I was naked, did you clothe me? And all these that he describes. And both groups respond, well, when did we ever see you naked and need clothing? When did we ever see you thirsty and not give you a drink? When did we ever see you in prison and not busy? When did we ever see all these things? And both times the response that Jesus gives is, what you did to the least of these is what you did to me. What we do toward God... What we do toward one another, what we do right now, determines our eternal destiny. It is not a big question mark. It is not a, well, I don't know how that's going to go. He died and arose so that that could happen to you. That's the whole point. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the whole purpose of that is so that you would be raised from the dead as well. And so what will I do to ensure that life? That's why the resurrection changes everything, brethren. Because now it's not about, okay, well, you know, I'm just really tired and I need to get home and I just don't care about anybody else. Now it's like, well, I got to do something because I'm preparing for the life to come. Now it's not about what's convenient for me. It's about how can I prepare myself so that I have the real life ahead of me? What can I do today for my Lord and for my brethren? What can I do now so that I can show myself to be part of this glorious kingdom? In Luke's gospel, we observed a parable where certain people, Luke gives it in the terms of of the minas, we often know the parable of the talents over in Matthew 25. Where given various amounts of money, talents are money in that day and time, so were minas. And in both of those parables, the response of that was, what you did now in these small things determined later for the big things of life. Did you show yourself worthy as a servant of God with these small things? Your wealth, your health, your time, your everything that you have right now. So that God will present to you the greater things. Eternal life. That's what those parables are driving at. He's blessed you with time now. He's blessed you with a body now. He has blessed you with abilities now. He has blessed you with wealth now. What will you do with it? Will you live as if this is the only life? Or will you live as if there's a life to go? Will you live as if today is all that matters? That this world is the sum total of it all? 
or where you live under the hope of resurrection, which changes everything about what I do today. The idea of reward, the idea of standing before God and being with Him eternally causes my heart to be willing to sacrifice and submit to God, to give everything that I have to Him, to be willing to suffer loss for Him, to see like what we're going to see with the apostles who are willing to go through danger and trial and trouble, all for the cause of Christ. We become willing participants of that, and we're willing to give of our time, and we're willing to lose our wealth, and we are willing to give everything because there is something better that we're going to participate in. If we make it just simply, well, you know, I've got to help you. Okay, that's what it means to be a Christian. All right, I guess I've got to shut the TV off and help you. you That's not living in view of resurrection. The way I joyfully serve, the way I joyfully give, the way I joyfully obey and joyfully worship drives off of the reality of resurrection. I know I have a life to come. I know that He lives, therefore I know I will live. And so what I do right now is everything to make sure that I'm living with Him. And I want to do that because I know I'm going to die. We all don't like to think of it. I always use my accounting term with you. It's called going concern. We assume perpetuity in in accounting. It will always go on and on and on. And we like to do that with our bodies. It will always just go on and on and on. No, it won't. So you're preparing for the new life. If you're not, then you better get all there is out of this life now. You just stop playing games with God. You either give everything to Him, or you might as well get everything you can out of this life, because that's it. And eternal torment awaits. I don't think that's a good decision. Eternity doesn't measure up very well to a few decades. But you need to give. You need to be serious about it. Because the resurrected life is worth it. And I will press and I will give all that I need to give for that eternity. died and raised so that you and I could have it. Without Him, there is no hope. Without His life, His death, His resurrection, it's eternal torment. He rose from the dead as a first fruits so that you'd be raised with Him too. Let that change how you do everything in this life. Put your song books out. We'll sing invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. We invite you to find your hope in Him. If we are not raised, what are we doing? And Paul says, since we are raised, we better give all that we can give to our glorious God. Live this life with a whole different perspective. Let it change everything about who you are. Let that be the rule of your life. I am going to go home to be with God. And I am willing now to make that sacrifice because of that glory. So 
turn away from a life of sin, a life of selfish living. Recognize that Jesus came for you. He came and died for you. And He rose with power over sin so that you could be joined to Him. Confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who rose from the dead. Be immersed in water to have those sins washed away. And in that, there's that whole picture. Raising to newness of life. You will be with Him. Won't you come, Holy Spirit?